No. I'm not worried at all. I rely on God, Allah. We want to welcome all you beautiful viewers to the Lifehawk podcast. Today, again, another spectacular guest, a friend of the podcast, Ustad Abdullah Andalusi. Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh. Welcome. Assalamu wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh. Glad to be here, brother. Yes, I'm glad to see you again. It seems like we're always brought together. Uh, in khair, uh, on the path of Fisabilillah. And today we have a wide assortment of um, delicacies in front of you. So these are, uh, would we say these are Canadian delicacies or, or global? We have a global fair of different delicacies that we have placed at your feet like a king. Uh, you are literally a king at this point. That cheesy popcorn with toffee popcorn. Yes. What abomination is this? Yes. What, uh, you have to hasana. keep them separate. This is... Uh... <laughs> it's a bidah hasana. Uh, it's, uh, it's a very good innovation um, from what I'm told. But um, let's see here. We have... The assortment is um, chocolate-covered caramels, right? Is that correct? Chef? Chef? Chocolate-covered caramels? Yes, okay. And these are these uh, almond uh, M&Ms? Peanut eminence. You you don't have a peanut allergy, do you? It's too um, late if you do. We'll, we'll see. Okay. We'll see. <laughs> and then this is uh, are this caramel popcorn? Yes. That's but the, uh, cheesy as well. It's got like it's, it's got cheese like in it as well. Cheesy popcorn. And... We don't segregate here. No, it has cheese and caramel need... mixed together. Egalitarian world where cheesy and sweet can coexist together. Only in okay. only in North America. Okay. And then. Um, this, these are the famous sour skittles. Sour skittles, yeah. Sour but skittles. But what, you, what you're lacking is um, the, the the blue box um, fruit loops. Oh, fruit loops. So, yeah, that's that that's um, the fruit loop uh, mm. uh, story is, um, is is one that's been attached to uh, Edmonton, I believe. It's, so uh, so you, it's you, a legend, in fact. So, so we have all the food groups covered here, right? Uh, in this uh, assortment. And uh, I think this is yeah, like... Yeah, all the healthy food, food groups, yeah. yeah. You should... Um, uh, we can actually advertise this as a new diet, right? Um, for the um, for the busy duat, right? Yeah, <laughs> the, for the busy the, duat. That, that's, <laughs> the, uh, that's tired the, of living. In the, the, <laughs> the, the, the duat is on the uh, go, right? Right, so... But alhamdulillah... On, on the go to diabetes, yeah? Yes. So we had... Um, uh, it's actually a late night kind of snack situation. Um, you had a lecture uh, uh, just uh, earlier today. Um, you've now been to uh, two different cities, correct? Um, Winnipeg and Edmonton. Yes. The second. Oh, so this, yeah, so this, this is the second stop for you. Um, how have you found your trip so far? Because we are bringing you this time, you're being brought in warmer weather conditions. How do you appreciate that? Yeah, well, today we, was only minus 14, so yeah, yeah. I feel like sunbathing or something. It's just, this is yeah, sunbathing weather yeah. in Canada. Yeah. Um, no, alhamdulillah, it's, uh, it's good, although it's a bit surreal because we're in COVID, um, COVID restrictions, although now it's being released or relaxed yeah. a bit. So uh, I hope I'm not it, triggering you. I'm not wearing a mask. We're not even six feet apart. So I, I'm kind of like, uh, I've got triple... Triple vaccinated and, <laughs> so and you're swabbed okay. and yeah, 
Um, yeah, all, all kinds. Um, How was it traveling? You were okay traveling? Process? It was actually pretty, pretty much smooth sailing, actually. Yes, yes. Smooth sailing. I'm not complaining at all. You didn't get randomly selected for extra testing or anything like that? No, no. I usually get randomly selected for other things. But but <laughs> in terms of okay. COVID testing, no. Okay, okay. No, but was... you do get randomly selected at uh, the airport for extra, you know... Questioning or whatever, did they um, do that for you? Oh no, no, only in only when you go to United States of America. Okay, okay. because United States of America is, is a welcoming place for visitors. Yeah, uh, as you, as everyone knows, but um, yeah. no, um, Canada and other places, no, they actually. That's uh, good. That's good. They um, they have a, a rather different policy from the uh, their neighbor to the south. Yes, yes. No, because in and of itself, obviously, in the era of COVID, it's very stressful traveling, and uh, then on top of that you have like all these COVID regulations and whatnot. So, but it's good to see you're here in person because we did this online last year because frankly speaking, the DAWA needs to continue, right? We can't, uh, we got to try and find ways and paths to, to get through uh, all these different barriers and they're all different tests for us. So Alhamdulillah, it's good to see you back because you're obviously one of like the mainstays for uh, this program that we have for the United Islam Awareness Week. Now, um, what I want to ask you is uh, just to kind of get things going because um, we're going to go wherever the night takes us. So we're going to maybe talk <laughs> about current events, contemporary things. We'll talk about serious things. Know, uh, we'll talk worried? about. But you know what? Uh, I wanted to actually because I know you are somebody really in tune with geopolitics, and um, you know you take an interest in that, and you have some good contacts and good opinions. Uh, this whole situation now that's happening uh, with Ukraine and Russia, what are the consequences for the Muslim community, right? Muslim nations, the Muslim community, uh, because you see a lot of comments online, either, you know, people are saying, oh, supporting Ukraine, how can Russia do this? Other people are saying, hey, Muslims, you should just stay out of this. And then other people are saying, hey, look, uh, there's Muslim Chechens fighting for Russia. We, you know, we support. What is your take on all of this, and what is the smart uh, move and play for the Muslim community? Oh, so so a light question then. To yeah, start, I just starters. want to get it going yeah. right away. Get, <laughs> get into something very light and easy and non-controversial. Okay, well, so a little bit about the origins um, of this of this conflict. Uh, so, 2014, there was a kind of um, a, a type of revolution, you could say, in Ukraine. Um, they have elections and you see um, a, a smattering of parties are elected, including some parties that have uh, what something might describe as very, very right-wing opinions. Mm. In, the, in Ukraine? In Ukraine. Okay. And so, so this, is, this is where the, some of the Nazi rhetoric is coming from, like... There's yeah, a lot of neo Nazis. Because both sides, both sides are accusing each other of being neo Nazis, right? Sure. Well, yeah. I mean, th th there was a minority of outspoken Ukrainians who had um, ultra nationalist perspectives. Mm. And then um, there was a, a push for the Ukrainian parliament to pass through a law that would um, cease recognizing Russian as a minority language and just not, like, just cease recognizing it officially. Mm. Um, which obviously alienated some of the Russian speakers mm. in uh, Donbass. And so possibly Putin saw this as an opportunity to interfere mm. in Ukrainian affairs. 
arguing that he was going to be defending, he's defending the Russian speakers from being alienated and being uh, discriminated against. Mm. Uh, and then uh, maybe uh, kind of enticing them or in essence, um, uh, getting people on the ground to, uh, to be his mouthpiece and call for um, independence of some um, territories um, which are Russian speaking. And this is a, a, a strategy that Russia has done also in Georgia as mm. well. Uh, people often forget that Georgia was also invaded a bit by Russia to protect these en- Russian speaking enclaves mm. in Georgia. So for some reason, people's memories are quite short for that. Yeah. Um, and also, um, uh, Moldova also has a little sliver um, of its land, which mm. again, Russia um, has has been working its um, kind of machinations to make it independent, even though it's not really recognized as such. So. Um, Russia's been doing that kind of tactic. Wherever Russian speakers are, it will try to uh, use them as a pretext to intervene mm. and extend its sphere. This is different than the pretext with the war that they had with Chechnya, correct? Uh, yeah, this is different. It, it is different because uh, Chechnya was considered to be still one of the um, federated states as part of the, Rus- the Russian Federation. Mm. And so Russia would not recognize their secession. Mm. And then um, while they have, let's say, a type of federated autonomy, uh, as much as the federation could permit, Mm. um, Russia certainly wants to keep it in their sphere of influence. Um, Some are arguing that Russia would like to see a return back to the the type of defensible borders that the Soviet Union um, as an an entire land block Mm. provided Russia. Uh, that's some some of the theories, um, and that Russia always cites history, and Putin has always cited history to show that oh, you know we've we've ex- experienced um, a minimum of at least four major European invasions of Russia mm. uh, in the past, going you know all the way back to see the two world wars and, the, and then Napoleon Bonaparte and one from Sweden. So mm. um, Putin's always talking about history a lot and saying mm. that well because the territory is very flat lands. It's, it's not defensible. You have to use a lot of tank divisions. To, um, uh, and again, there's nothing, there's no rocks to hide behind. There's no mountains to hide mm. behind. There's no natural barriers. So Russia might feel to be in a, in a way um, vulnerable. Mm. And some people have said that the um, geography of Russia has always, has always determined its, um, its foreign policy and its domestic policy. Mm. Um, so yeah, that's generally what, what occurred. Now, there's, a, there's an added bit to the mix, added bit of spice to the mix, which is um, Putin is, has a, a long record of manipulation. Um, manipulating domestic politics and trying to interfere in foreign politics. But his manipulation is rather very is insidious, but also Kafka-esque. Uh, in Russia, he will he will get funded um, both you know, pro-Putin organizations, pro-Putin, pro-Russian government organizations, and even opposition organizations. So those who are opposing him or criticizing him, um, so much so there's there's so many um, kind of funding of different um, organizations which seem to be at contrary odds, if you would, to on appearance. 
But what this actually does is that it makes no one sure who's actually genuine and who's actually being a, a, a kind of a, a mouthpiece or a manipulation mm. of Putin. So it's kind of like a fake opposite or controlled opposition that uh, he creates. More like a controlled confusion Okay. to the point that you become paranoid about everyone, that oh, okay. you, you don't organize with anyone, mm. anyone uh, a real opposition, mm. because you don't know who to trust. You don't it just know which causes one is. paralysis, basically, of anything. Yeah, and, and it's highly effective. It's mm. highly effective. So some people have speculated that perhaps the so-called neo-Nazis in Ukraine was also a Putin manipulation as well. Mm. Uh, but this is, we're in the realm of um, obviously speculation here. Yes. But it's certainly not outside the remit. But um, whatever Putin does, don't any of these world powers, aren't they doing the same type of you know, tactics or at least have the same type of objective, which is to retain, you know, this type of uh, power. Um, yes, but... And manipulate uh, other Putin people. does it right? better. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Because, um, like, United States of America, its usual approach is it will fund um, its allies and, and friends because there's it has... Uh, there's, a, there's a degree of oversight, uh, with the exception of black, the black ops that... CIA might do and things like this, but mm. there's a degree a bit more of an oversight. So mm. they ha they will usually fund um, friends and allies that they want to support, mm. generally speaking. Um, but to kind of be funding a whole bunch of different organizations, including anti-American organizations, yes. um, we don't hear so much about, or there's not yeah. much credible evidence about. That would be too yeah. much manipulated. And they view it as pointless anyway. Yeah. Um, but... Putin, well, I, 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 guess, a, I guess their methodology is different. Like their their Game of Thrones essentially maybe have a has a different set of rules, uh, whereas obviously Russia has like Putin has developed this. But it just seems that all of these different you know major players on the world stage are also actively trying to manipulate uh, one another's right. Uh, of course, yeah. it's a question of tactics rather yeah. than. Um, uh, Differing aim, different, differing um, uh, strategies. Everyone has the same strategy to manipulate e each mm. other, to weaken the mm. rivals, and to, um, and the West would love to see a regime change in Russia. Mm. That someone that was more uh, friendly, uh, a type of a return of of um, Yeltsin, Boris Yeltsin, perhaps, mm. is, is what they would love to see. Um, but on the flip side, um, Putin's. Most of his of his manipulation occurs domestically in mm. in Russia, mm. which keeps his opposition paralyzed because no one knows which opposition amongst the opposition leaders mm. and movements you can trust. Yes, and you're right. You you have controlled opposition. That that's true. Um, but it, it's like you know, as a Muslim, let's say you were to hear of uh, okay, let's say there's a, a, a Muslim organization. They seem to be speaking. Uh, the truth about things and explaining the trauma Islam unapologetically. But what if you then discover that this organization has been funded by the US government? Yeah. Right? You say, well, wait a second, I can't trust them anymore. Yeah. Even though they haven't said anything that's bad and you actually would agree with some of the mm. things they might have said, but if you if you knew they were being funded by the US government, then any other organization that says something similar to them, yeah. you'll start suspecting. Mm. And pretty soon you won't know who to trust. Mm. And then the suspicions will, uh, but abound. but you know that they actually do that. United States government, uh, there's an academic paper um, that I have where they go and actually study 
the different uh, programs that um, United States government has developed to support different Islamic organizations that achieve their objective. And a lot of it is yeah. also linked with the research with the RAND Corporation. It's the RAND Corporation, right? Yeah. So then yeah. how they... Similar democratic Islam, that one, yeah. Exactly, right? And then, uh, you know, if you look into the details of that report, for example, they, you know, classify, you know, your, your traditionalists, your fundamentalist Muslims, um, your, um, your modernists and whatnot. And then they go into the details, okay, we want to pit, like, you know, the fundamentalists against the traditionalists. And when we have an option of like, if this is this scenario, this is the best options. If it's like a modernist and a traditionalist, they, these are the best options. So they kind of go through these different uh, essentially algorithms and then they fund those, um, you know, this, those specific organizations or they'll provide grants, uh, even to the extent like, you know, there's like uh, Muslim hip hop groups and they'll they'll fund they'll they get funding you know what i mean so it's interesting like uh, you know how you mentioned that how what putin does but uh, like it just brought to my mind that academic paper where um they actually study you know how the the extent that they do that they ex they study the effect that their program programs or their interactions have on themselves so for example they have like a you know um, a division that is um, contracted to deal with Muslims. Oftentimes, like we saw with the Gulf War, for example, like the first uh, Gulf War especially, uh, and they learned from this that many of their soldiers became Muslim. You know what I mean? Because of the interaction and because they were in Saudi for a while, and a lot of the uh, bases, you know, the attacks that came from Saudi many people became Muslim. So they actually started studying, okay, we have this program or we have this agenda with Muslims. So what is the effect of that interaction of like our soldiers, our whatever NGO that we've set up or whatever, uh, what is the effect on those people? Because they have an, obviously an objective, but you can get the reverse because, you know, if they sympathize or if they, you know, come to accept some of those principles and say, hey, this is not as bad as what we thought it would be, it has that refers. So they actually study that effect of how to counteract that. So this, this is, you know, what you're telling me, you know, subhanAllah, I think this may be more widespread. Like obviously we see this with Putin, but I, I think we've seen this, obviously the Muslim community has been uh, affected by this. I think also they've done like a lot of the Dawah organizations and whatnot um, in, in, in some Muslim countries, right? Like say a lot of movements they get manipulated and people are like, I don't want to be part of anything because is this from the government? It's like, is this a, like a fake thing? Is this real? Or are these, you know what I mean? So again, it's like that paranoia, which causes par paralysis, you know? Uh, so, you know, I think it's, uh, he, he's probably perfected it and done it very well, but perhaps we see this even more widespread, especially I think being used against Muslims. Yeah, it's, it's, um, in a way, yes, but there's a, a very slight difference between them. So Putin's kind of strategy, um, former KGB as he is, yeah. um, the, their tactic is uh, to paralyze political opposition um, mm. and, uh, and uh, kind of keep his regime um, stable and strong and enjoy public support. Mm. Um, that's more concerning people's opinions and sentiments concerning the, the government. And so on, but mm. what the Rand Corporation paper I believe you're referring to 
had a more grandiose objective, which yeah. is to actually change the Muslim mindset about Islam itself, which is a few degrees above. Oh yeah, it's um, next level. Uh, uh, Putin's more um, kind of uh, short-term strategy and much less. It, it, the scope is much more. Does Putin more have reduced. an ideology that he's trying to like create or that's? You know, driving him, or is it just him? It's like I want my regime, or is there it's, an ideology that he is? It's just a uh, your your what was it standard garden variety um, dictator. Mm. But Russia, the Russian Constitution, of course, is uh, is purportedly secular, uh, secular liberal, a version of secular liberalism. It's mm. not it's certainly not Marxist anymore. Um, but, but Putin wants to retain um, office, and of course. The, the the constitution doesn't allow um, mm. him his office to be uh, re-elected um, more than twice, and, mm. and then he he, he made uh, he used uh, a colleague of his to kind of fill in as a puppet, and then he comes he gets elected again afterwards mm. to continue another term, another two terms. Um, so but he can't live forever. So is he gonna like you know is it gonna be? Um, monarchy like is he trying to establish you know like a some type of succession after is he is that in the works like is there any signs of that because you know i, I mean i don't think um i don't think um even putin could would uh, perhaps uh, be so brazen mm. um to ha to set up a, a dynasty but i think as far as he's alive he wants to be in power mm. in russia and sure, like he, he's motivated by your, your bulk standard nationalist sentiments. Uh, he wants Russia to be powerful and, mm. and strong and so on and so forth. It, it's not ideological so far. It's just mm. uh, your standard garden variety um, uh, autocrat. Yeah. Uh, for want of a better word. And so, yeah, there's nothing um, uh, kind of too mysterious. But it, Russian history has always had a preference for autocrats mm. or monarchs, basically, from Ivan the Terrible. Mm. Um, and uh, wait, wait, Could you say that for the world, though, too? Um, I mean, not quite, because certain places like, like Venice, uh, you know, has uh, was a city-state that um, had a um, kind of elected oligarchy rule, and mm. um, that suited them. Um, others had uh, constitutional monarchies or tr uh, monarchies controlled by, um, uh, you could say, tradition forming the constitution. So the, the power of the king limited by tradition. Mm. But Russia has had full-blown autocrats. The difference being mm. between an autocrat, autocrat and a king is the king is limited by the traditions that um, he is in power to preserve and continue. And so he could always be potentially be removed from power by the Council of Nobles or whoever is the Ahl al who kind of um, are the kingmakers. Whereas a dictator um, or an autocrat has absolute power in, in, in its, you know, we could say, um, maximal sense that in, any individual can have. Uh, they can they can define whatever the culture is of the country at mm. will. Um, and yeah, there's nothing to stop them from from their diktat becoming law. Mm. And even though Russia has a constitution, it has laws, but it, it is a uh, de jure democracy, 
but it's a de facto autocracy. Mm. See, okay. and um, and it's just like Russians have usually looked up to strong autocratic autocratic leaders, or at least obeyed them anyway. Mm. So two th- you're saying 2014, there was this tension, uh, and uh, Putin was trying to manipulate the situation, utilize this um, sentiment where you know Russian-speaking people were their rights were being taken away, um, or they were somehow being oppressed. So yeah. well, some might say he actually helped engineer that circumstance to give him mm. a pretext, but Allah mm. we don't know. So but then. Okay, so then what, what what ends up becoming the result of that? Because obviously it, it something resolves so that we have this inflamed situation now. Well, um, Russia uses the pretext of intervention. Um, it, uh, it says that it's simply helping to arm the um, independent move, independence movements um, in uh, southeast Ukraine. Mm. Um, but really, people suspect it's just the Russian army um, coming in and pretending to be um, Russian-speaking Ukrainians. Mm. Um, and but th- that that you, you could say the civil war begins, but mm. that civil war kind of um, it simmers and reaches a, a type of fixed stalemate. Mm. And um, Russia wanted to initially just saber rattle and scare Ukraine into giving concessions, maybe autonomy to those regions, uh, which would then de facto just be, you know, extensions of Russia. Mm. Um, and Russia really took the Crimea, um, uh, just in, in annexed them um, unilaterally. And uh, Russia just thought that they could get these concessions and take, because the, okay, so the, the there's this kind of two areas in Southeast Ukraine. And the so-called rebels control one third of those areas, but they claim they claim the whole area. They claim mm. both the whole area. So it was thought that you know Russia was going to basically pressure Ukraine to basically cede those areas to the to the rebels or give them at least autonomy of some kind. But then really they'd come under the sphere of influence of Russia because they're on the border and you know, they're going to be fully dependent on on Russia. Um, but when Ukraine wasn't backing down on this, and despite the threats, despite the saber rattling, um, and then of course it escalated when um, his saber rattling, he uses it in domestic uh, media outlets to just get the, people, the Russian people behind him. Uh, but then as the, as the West and others um, start kind of counter-threatening um, Putin and, and so on, it gets to the point where becomes hard for him to back down. Uh, many people think that, many political analysts think that he'd actually never intended that it would end up with an invasion of Ukraine. He hoped that Ukraine would have just backed down. But because he's been, let's say, uh, in you're his- talk, you're, you're talking about now or still 2014? I'm talking about now. Okay. Talking about now recently. Okay. And then, uh, but because he's been uh, talking as they're talking a good game, mm. um, and responding to the comments of the Ukrainian mm. leadership as well as um, uh, the uh, the European powers in the United States of America, uh, he would lose a lot of face to actually really just back down now. Mm. What, what about um, people speculating that it was um, 
the possibility of Ukraine joining NATO and then having NATO right at their doorstep was one of the precipitating factors for this um, latest invasion. Um, some have said that, um, but uh, why why was NATO dithering then? Uh, is it, uh, NATO was dithering in, on mm. actually um, incorporating Ukraine in. If that was going to occur, it was going to was going to probably occur sooner rather than late, uh, rather than later. But it hasn't yet. Yeah. Um, and if we see yeah. one of the results, like Biden did give a speech, where he never said, "Oh, we're going to send any military. We're we're not going to be involved directly with any type of military um, support of Ukraine besides just providing them weapons." But he just said, "But if he steps one foot onto any NATO country." We were going. We're going to attack, right? Yeah. So that seems to be a very hard line. Like you know, if you're part of a NATO country, you're going to get attacked. But and so I don't know if this was. It seems like it is. It is a pretty big reason for them. But I don't know if this is the, like this is just being used as the, you know, latest reason to justify you know um, that invasion or from within his own country or or, or what, but. Um, one thing that does give some credence to that is the statement of Biden, because he's he specifically said, like when he was asked, are you going to send troops um, to help support Ukraine? He said no. Uh, he's like, but then he followed up by saying to try to get, you know, save face himself and show that we're still brave and, you know, you don't mess with us. Uh, if he steps one foot on any single NATO country, we're going to hit him with the full force. Yeah, and, and Russia wouldn't do it e um, anyway either. It's um, yeah. it's not like the Soviet Union times where the Russian army actually outnumbered the combined forces of Europe. Mm. Uh, now the Europe, the European armies um, in Europe actually outnumber um, the Russian army in tanks and, and soldiers. So, do you see China? Do you see China taking advantage of this and you know getting, you know, with the Taiwan situation? Um. Well. It's it's a it's a kind of watch and wait um, for China. Um, already, China has been testing um, Taiwan defenses with uh, f you know uh, fighter flyovers and things like this, mm. uh, testing their air defenses. Um, not necessarily enticing them to shoot, but um, uh, trying to constantly keep their air defenses in a state of readiness mm. and seeing mm. how they react to that, mm. um, because it, it's within it's within um, military jet range. Mm. Uh, Taiwan, and so um, they're they're testing the waters, mm. and when the as the strategic balance changes more and more as China gets uh, stronger and stronger, and the United States of America their, their military has obviously decreased over um, many decades, um, they might uh, they might be overextended, um, their way, you know, and therefore there might be a time where China might exploit that to take back Taiwan. Mm. It's never backed down from claiming um, Taiwan as part of, as an integral part of China. And so, uh, I think everyone knows it's a, it's a, it could be a matter of time before China does put it. But it's waiting to see what it thinks about the, um, the, the American response. So back to the uh, original question: This conflict well, now between what's Ukraine and Ukraine, yeah, yeah, yeah. Like so, as a Muslim community, because you see, obviously, a lot of you see, you know, Muslims, like you know, anyone who's taking this maturely. Obviously, you have anybody who like they they joke about this and they talk about you know 
all sorts of other connected to all sorts of other things. But um, as Muslims, we know there's Muslims in Ukraine. Uh, there's Muslims uh, in the Crimea. Fought, yeah, in the Crimea, and, and there's Muslims in uh, uh, you know fighting with the Russians. So you have two groups of Muslims within these non-Muslim armies, essentially. Um, what should the Muslim perspective be on this? Well, I I I, I would see from from the, from the Quran, our our perspective, generally speaking, is uh, what is to be gained by. Um, fighting in the name of a, a war that uh, really has n nothing to do with Islamic interests. Mm. Uh, they're, they're both fighting for nationalism. Mm. And as, as, as Muslims, we know there's a hadith by the Rasulullah where, um, to paraphrase, anyone who, um, who calls for nationalism, uh, anyone who fights for nationalism, anyone who dies for nationalism, nationalism is not one of it's not one of us, not one mm. of the Muslims. Mm. So to paraphrase the narration. And so um, any Muslim that goes out to fight and risk their, their neck just for the sake of nationalism, mm. um, it, well, it could be risking a lot indeed, not just in this life, um, mm. but in the next. And so there's no reason. now. Because couldn't they, also, couldn't they also be used as pawns as they often do? You know what I mean? Oh, Muslims are regularly used as pawns. Right? Like, uh, so, so it, I don't know if you saw that clip of somebody from the UK. Like, I don't know if he was a commentator or what. It was going around in Twitter where he was saying, oh, we need to send Mujahideen to help the Ukrainian people. As some white guy. Who, do you know what I'm ta referring to? Um, I, haven't heard of, I haven't heard of that. But the, would they say that? Would they say the same about uh, the Syrians... Who've been, who've been faced the bombardment of Russian forces in Syria? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. No, of course not. Uh, like. Yeah, of yeah, course not, because yeah. they would be accused of being uh, of, the, of this is terrorism. Yes. Yeah. yeah. Exactly. Because but when they're it's praising in the West people, interests, yeah. it's not terrorism. I mean, you, heard, yeah. you saw the recent story of this um, Ukrainian um, uh, kind of military engineer who blew himself up. Yes. And to t to destroy a bridge to prevent mm. the Russians from crossing it, mm. said as a hero. Yeah, suicide bomber. Yeah, yeah, suicide bomber. Yeah. Said, as a, said as a hero. Yes. Whereas, um, if a Muslim did that, of mm. course, um, for a different for a different cause, they, they accuse him of being a terrorist. Mm. Um, like I have no doubt that the Russian media will describe once they, if Russia is able to um, uh, kind of let's say take Kiev and mm. control the country. There'll be a guerrilla warfare that will begin, funded by the West, undoubtedly. Mm. And Russia will say these are insurgent terrorists. Mm. Right? And the West will say these are brave resistance fighters. Mm. Same narrative again and again and again. Mm. Um, but this, this case, because it's in the West's interest to support Ukraine, they will show, oh, look how the people of Ukraine are suffering. But meanwhile, how many Afghans and Iraqis suffered mm. much worse damage. And currently in Yemen, uh, the American allies, you know, Saudi's bombardment and destruction of Yemen goes unremarked. Surely you've heard some of the um, uh, controversial commentating by ma mainstream news outlets in regards to this, right? The one the CBS reporter saying, you know, he's shocked to see this happening and such a civilized 
society with blonde hair, blue eyes. You know what I mean? Like, it, it's incredible how open they are about describing these people as like, this could be like one of us, like blonde hair, blue eyed, you know, uh, you, you know, people who are civilized and, you know, you know so it's, <laughs> and the way that they're talking, like as if they're, they've only, it's been only days, right? For them to be involved in this conflict. And they're almost talking about them as being these great resistance fighters. You know, where Afghanistan, obviously, like the British Empire, the Russian Empire, the American Empire, right? You know, the, the graveyard of empires is there, right? But uh, the, the double standard, it's so stark, like it's so open, you know? And um, uh, I think it was just another clip that I saw recently with Condoleezza Rice. I don't know what, like, they don't, they're not embarrassed to bring these people and ask them questions. Oh, uh, do you think uh, somebody to attack a sovereign nation, you know, like, uh, you know, to the effect, like, do you think this is a criminal act, something to that effect? And she's like, of course, this is a, you cannot attack a sovereign. I'm like, is this like a comedy show? Like, is, yeah. this, is this literally like, is this like, you cannot parody, you cannot make a parody of this. Well... I, I've hoped that through all this that Muslims have, will, will um, realize something that, that they should have realized long ago, which is, unfortunately, the world is not governed or ruled by um, principles mm. as much as the UN um, would like to claim it is um, or under the international law. Mm. What we see is always in international affairs, might has always been the determinant of right. Mm. Um, what I would advise Muslims to take note from this is, uh, I think, two things. One of them is that if Muslims are going to, if if they're going to uh, require the the world to value Muslim blood and not to shed mm. it and not to oppress Muslims, then Muslims are going to have to consider uh, um, valuing their blood first mm. and having a state that unites us, that values Muslim blood, puts mm. Muslim blood as a, um, as a inviolable interest mm. that it will move heavens and earth to defend and protect. Which, as and we know from the, the Rasulullah Sallallahu that described that the Imam is a shield behind which the Ummah fight and protect itself. Mm. If we choose to not heed the words of the, 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 the Prophet, of the creator of the universe, Sallallahu then why are, would we, why are we surprised when um, our enemies just attack us like you know, guests at a dinner table mm. so freely, so openly, even inviting each other to, to do so? Mm. And, and secondly is that how can we expect anyone around the world to value Muslim blood if we don't value our own mm, blood? That's a very good point. And that's what, um, that's what you know, re-establishing um, the Khilaf, which all the classical scholars have said is an obligation. Mm. It's, a, it, it's just a... A non-negotiable obligation. There's age mm. mark across all schools of thought on this. Mm. So much so that the first um, splinter sects um, in the time of um, just after the Sahabas, even in the time of Sahabas, mm. were were the um, the Khawarij and, and then a bit later bit the, the the Shia, whose main disagreement was who who, uh, who should be a caliph and how which what is it, what makes a valid caliph. That's mm. how. The, the, it wasn't on, should, do we need a khilaf or is it of importance? No, no, it was, 
who meets the criteria to be the leader. That's how important it was because Muslims mm. um, have to, we have to have a, a, a state that puts Islam and Muslim interests first. Which Muslim country ever cares about Muslim interests? You know, the right. one um, unfortunate fact or un unfortunate possible circumstances that can arise when we look at Islamic history is that anytime you had like an establishment of an empire like that forming that the the coalition to to create that khalifa or that dynasty you know say for example the ayyubid uh, for example it seemed like it needed to have a lot of civil war you know you know like you need to conglomerate you know to 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 bring that uh, you know power together because with, for example, the current modern states, right? Say like tomorrow, uh, someone in Pakistan, Pakistan is this khalif, okay, we're doing khalif. For them to really do that, they're going to have to fight all these Muslim countries, unless they all say, yes, okay, we're going to, you understand what I'm saying? But the way that nationalism and these modern states are set up, it seems like, it's such a far distant uh, possibility. Like it seems so out of reach. And then when you say, okay, what would be perhaps the way that things would come about? It seems like it would be super tumultuous. Like the way that you would have to coalesce power and consolidate um, parts, portions of the ummah together. Um, you know, like for example, we know Salah al-Din, he, he ended up fighting Muslims more than he fought the Crusaders. You know, um, yes, yes, and no. Um, so, so firstly, what we see is that um, when people see about more wars in the Muslim world in the medieval times, we imagine these are like World War One wars where there's complete destruction um, of cities, cities wiped off, you know, scorched earth, and things like this. But what actually happened when um, see the, the average Muslim civilian? would see uh, two emirs of two rival cities even fighting each other. And as far as they were concerned, it's like two gangs going to war, and they're just bystanders to it. Because whoever wins, it's going to be the emir, and it's going to be Muslim, and the, this, the law, Islamic law is still being applied. So as far as they're concerned, it's irrelevant who is the leader. Um, so the emir would just have but, his but soldiers. But you know the, the movements that, did work, that we would say is good and based on Quran and Sunnah, a lot of them actually did bring a reformation, like they were fighting, like the laws weren't like, they had maybe, you know what I mean? Like the Morabitun, yeah. for example. Yeah. You, yeah. you know what I mean? And even uh, Salah al-Din when he came and the reformation yeah. with the Shia. So like, uh, it's not, I would say there was, it went hand in hand in that reformation, I would say, you know? Well, I mean, look, the, the, the issue is that the, um, the the Abbasid Caliphate uh, Khilafah was a, was still existent at the time of um, uh, Salahuddin. Yes. Uh, he gave he gave bayah to the Abbasid yeah. uh, Khalifa, um, but the Abbasid Khalifa uh, had been um, had been reduced to uh, uh, direct control. It had managed to reestablish having direct control over the land, not just a figurehead anymore, but it was still limited to an area around uh, in Iraq. Yes. Um, but the, the Fatimids had always been a traditional enemy of the Abbasid Caliphate. But what you saw is that 
the Fatimids were having um, uh, issues, d domestic problems and issues, they invited Salahuddin Ayyubi to come and um, be a defender of the, um, of the Fatimid state. And he came and then he just did a coup and took it over because um, it, 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 it was too weak. And, and then he united mm. the resources of Egypt and yeah. what he'd conquered in Syria. Um, I don't think, why he, he fought many Muslim um, wayward emirs to unite them, it didn't involve wholesale destructions of towns or cities. No, no, that's not what yeah. I'm saying. Like, yeah. uh, because, uh, of course, if you would treat the crusaders, we know he's so famous for treating them with mercy. Uh, you know, he uh, Muslims are going to have even a, uh, a greater uh, concession and, and, and he would do that for them. But, like, I'm just saying, like... Not necessarily like uh, with those perceptions that any infighting would, um, because this is a little bit controversial, right? Like when we're saying that if we look at history, the way that they consolidated power, there was a lot of internal within the Muslim community. And the most recent example of like that always gets brought up is like of these extremist groups. So we don't want to equate it to the same thing, right? We don't want to equate it like, you know, to these fringe and extremist groups. But it just seems like if you were going to have a pan-Islamic uh, type of coalition, there's either two scenarios. One scenario is that you have these modern states be able to come together and give bay'a, like either elect from amongst themselves or to one state that rises above and give bay'a to that, you know. Or you have one state or one region um, exert some type of effort and campaign to consolidate power. That's what it seems like. Those are the two most likely uh, paths. You know, what are what are your thoughts well, in regards <clears throat> to that? Uh, well, the, because one of them is a more dream scenario. The other one's like not so dreamy, but maybe a little bit more realistic. Well, what what you see is that, I mean, how would w the first country become? Um, uh, become transformed uh, into uh, a Khilafah state, there would obviously be Muslim campaigning in that state. But w would it only be in one state that Muslims would be campaigning for this? It would be multiple states. Maybe that one state would reach it first, perhaps. Would be the, case. the reason why I say this in modern history, Afghanistan came very close because of so many foreign Muslims and people coming together. And after they defeated the Russians, there was that sentiment like, hey, pan-Islamic ideas can come back and look at us, you know, we're from all over the world. We defeated the Russians, you know what I mean? So from that template, you know, we saw, and then when they went, uh, you know, afterwards, obviously many of the same people went off and uh, did that in in Chechnya for a while. Mm -hmm. So that's where, you know, you, you, could, you could see that when you have people having at least the opportunity to come together and say, and this doesn't necessarily have to be for war, right? Like if you had a peaceful Muslim country, and a lot of people thought of Malaysia about that, by the way, in the 90s, there was a lot of thought like, you know, amongst Muslims and a lot of uh, rhetoric, hey, we should go to Malaysia. This is a good place like for, you know, for us to reestablish um, like, you know, some type of Muslim, a uh, proper Muslim country like, you know, with almost like a, not a, maybe like a khilaf identity, like in the late 90s, and then there was the economic crash and whatnot. But, you know, you, you understand what I'm saying? So well, well, if, if a, if, if a country is open is, yeah. to accept different Muslims, yeah. um, then, 
you know, you, that's where you could see that coming well, about. Well, there's, there's perhaps a third scenario, um, mm. which is um, you start changing each of the, the countries um, through um, mass campaigning, mm. um, at least the key, a bunch of key ones, uh, turning them into Islamic um, emirates. Um, where the, the, the emir is, is, uh, is just an emir, but the, the system is Islamic, mm. um, the sentiments are Islamic, and um, the emir is, would, 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 could possibly be argued to take a provisional role mm. and have a provisional authority pending the, the caliph's um, uh, kind of uh, assumption to power, assumption to power. And then you, when you get enough key um, Islamic emirates in the Muslim world, um, then they could have a conference um, and mm. and decide um, uh, a system I, I would of say, electing a, yeah. a, of, a, of, a, of a Khalifa, and then mm. they would become all governorates mm. um, of the uh, of the Khalifa. And then mm. once you you have enough, at least um, a critical mass of uh, Muslim Islamic emirates, mm. which then incorporate themselves into a Khalifa, the the countries that are that are not part of that. The people might in them, the Muslims in them, wouldn't be very, wouldn't be, would be reticent to oppose that once they're seeing that the ball is starting to roll in that direction. And so, even those countries that um, whose regimes might be corrupt and would want to and are backed by the West or, and are want want to resist, their soldiers might not fight for them. Mm. They might they might give up. And if there's anything that I've noticed um, from looking at history of um, Muslims motivated by nationalism and Muslims motivated by um, Islamic sentiments is that soldiers, Muslim soldiers motivated by Islamic sentiments regularly outperform by many, um, many of course, by, so, by, by yeah. multiples of course, by factors of, course. of or at least two or three, yeah. um, those motivated by nationalism. Mm. I mean, I mean, just look at um, just look at the Saudi army in Yemen, mm. despite having advanced weaponry and equipment, it's pretty much in a stalemate. In mm. Yemen, against um, the, you know, Houthi fighters are not really um, a, a modern army by any mm. standard, right? and yet the, the you Saudis know, I can't think really people fail to yeah, people fail to realize that unless, like you know, when you have a bigger power, like a like when there is a massive power indifference, if the uh, if that entity that has the greater power. If they aren't able to actually win within a short period of time, it becomes very difficult. It becomes very, very difficult. Like unless they do it in a very, very short period of time, then it becomes drawn out and you can't actually, unless you colonize that area, like you physically start living there and you're like going to be like part of the population. It doesn't happen. It doesn't happen. They're always, they're always kicked out. Um, the only reason I say, I, I say that not because in a fatalistic way to say, hey, we got to end up fighting each other and this is how it's going to happen. But that's the only historical template that I see. You know what I mean? If, like that, co that, that coalescing of like, especially when you have um, it fractured so much, right? Like, you know, we've had it where you've had uh, different emirates of powers and whatnot. And, um, uh, you know, unless you have the other scenario that has sometimes brought people together is that when you have like this overwhelming um outside force that just forces people to coalesce together to unite together right so you have that overwhelming external thing like hey if we don't unite we're gonna die we're gonna, this is gonna be game over like there's not no one's gonna be left right so yeah. 
Well, I, I mean, I, I think it, it takes um, a combination of the threats posed by um, Israel, Russia, and India mm. from, uh, I think, for ultimately Muslims to get their act together. Mm. Because um, India has 200 million Muslims. Mm. And if um, the Hindutva were able to uh, get to a point where they were going to kick out or just massacre Muslims, it would be a genocide greater than any we've seen in, in, in modern history. And people are saying that we're yeah, at the yeah. precipice of that. Yeah, yeah. And, of course, Russia um, is also eyeing up Kazakhstan, mm. a ostensibly Muslim country. Um, to again reincorporate and make the uh, and get its defensive more defensive borders, it would mm. retake the Central Asian stands, as they say, mm. uh, for for uh, as the Soviet Union had those uh, incorporated in them as Soviet republics back in the day. Mm. So um, so uh, there's that, and then of course uh, not just how India treat, treats Muslims in India, uh, but also uh, India's been spying um, Azad Kashmir. There's always a question of they wanted mm. to reunify Kashmir for themselves. And mm. the Pakistani military, yes, it does have tactical nukes to deal with mass numbers of, in, of uh, Indian army. Mm. But still, it is, it's, uh, it's facing um, an army that is, is much larger than itself, mm. than, than it, um, the numbers it could bring to bear. And as the Indian economy um, gets stronger and stronger, mm. obviously their, their army will be more and more funded. Mm. And um, it will pose a greater threat, such that Pakistan can't contain it or, or prevent it from um, doing what it wills, perhaps, on its own territory without help from the rest of the Muslim Ummah. So I think Muslims are going to be, in a way, until we snap out of our stupor, we're going to face ever encroaching and ever more brazen um, attacks on Muslims uh, and uh, from outside the Muslim world coming in, coming into us. Do you, which, which country do you see as the best hope for reviving pan-Islamic uh, unity? Well, it's not a case of one country. I see. So you see, the thing is, whenever you mention a country, people will say, oh, but look how bad they are in this country, or look how secular mm. they are in this country. Mm. And um, it's always this half, because glass, half you, empty, because, but not the, they don't see... Yeah. Many Muslims, unfortunately, don't see the potential for how something can be turned around. Yes, for the because many many Muslims they look at, for example, um, the two countries right now that Muslims have a little bit of hope for for because of the rhetoric of their leaders is Turkey and Pakistan. You know, and um, they both have like different things that work for them and different things that work against them, right? Yeah. So, you know, I was recently talking, you know, to some, um, you know, du'at and scholars and, you know, people familiar with Pakistan. And they say one thing that Pakistan has uh, that many other countries don't have is the ulama there, the scholars there um, have a lot more freedom and a lot more power. And it's hard to really actually... Um, even if you don't like somebody, even the army cannot, you know, if, the, if that scholar of like that uh, certain masjid they're following has strong enough, you know, they have the numbers and whatnot, uh. they know it's too hard. It's it's not worth it, right? Um, and then you look at Turkey, like they've made some, compared to just 
a decade, two decades ago, or especially if you compare it to like a hundred years ago, uh, and Kamalism and what they tried to do to completely sanitize any real substance of Islam within the country. Um, for that, you know, to be over, you know, just reversed over time and, you know, to to even have a, that, that strong presence of Islamic identity. So people look at Turkey as, uh, you know, as a sign of hope as well, right? And both of them have also called, like both leaders have also called for some type of a pan-Islamic organization to, a, you know, to a certain degree, right? It's so, a certain degree, but yeah. like... It, 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 I mean, what, what we'd have to look at is not necessarily just those which are close, uh, not close, but like closer to um, realizing um, Islamic emirates, but um, countries that are actually strategically strong. Mm. You need to get, you have to collect all the strong ones and then you can um, reconstitute the, the Khilafah because the, the remaining countries will be very weak. And once the strong ones kind of... Um, uh, so who who would you say are the strong would ones? Also be, well, it would be it would be Egypt as a as a as a strategic mm. strong power in that region. Yeah, um, so close yet so far with Egypt, right? Yeah, but <laughs> so but, but things can turn around pretty yeah. quickly. We yeah. uh, Muslims, I think one of the the main things that we um, suffer from, unfortunately, in my experience, is um, a lack of imagination of, of of the possibilities it's always yeah. oh brother do you know how secular turkey is oh yeah. brother do you know how backward this country is no, you know you know what uh, like when uh, have you have you been to turkey uh no no okay not yet. so if you if inshallah uh you go we'll go we'll go together inshallah we'll make a trip um if you go to turkey and if you know the history of turkey and you know what kemalism did i actually look at the opposite i look at i'm like man i can't believe they brought Islam back to that extent. Mm. You know, when you had the Adhan outlawed, when you had imamas, you had to have like only a certain people uh, who were given a religious license, like you're an imam of like, uh, or a, you're able to teach at one of their schools, can wear an imama in public. No one else is allowed to wear an imama in public. You know, when you were banning, banning the, you know, the hijab, you know, uh, teaching Quran, all of these different things. And then I go... And I, and I see the most secular, like, modern liberal neighborhood. It has a small masjid, a small masjid. Everywhere around there is like, it's like a very expensive, like, neighborhood. And you hear five times a day a van on loudspeaker being blasted. And then on Friday, on Jum'ah, they have, like, uh, ayat, of, like, they have Quran recitation that people hear. You know what I mean? And when you go to the masjid, packed, always. Five daily prayers, packed, right? I'm like, even though I walk down the street of Istanbul and I see like these secular guys walking around with tattoos and there's restaurants serving alcohol, I'm like, compared to what what they had to go through, and especially if you're familiar what they had to go through for the past few decades, like any type of Islam revivalist, they would come and the army would depose them, like, will they just take back power anytime they, you know, they said, okay, these guys are becoming a little bit too religious, right? And for them to now, when the the last coup came and they were able to, you know, maintain the power, uh, I was like, this is a this is a phenomenal accomplishment. In that period of time, after all the effort that uh, was put in through Kamalism and external support and you know and 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 whatnot to you know reshape that, because you as you know, 
Europeans' eyes are always on there, right, on, on Turkey. And um, they put an incredible amount of effort, right? And there's that one point where Turkey was bending, and then to a certain degree, you know, they still do um, bending over backwards to be part of this European Union, right? But in recent history, like, for example, my one of my shiuch uh, was invited to, like, an international conference, uh, about like uh, moon sighting and you know these different fiqh issues. You know what? One of my shiuchis, PhD in Aswad al fiqh. So he talked to me about this and he said this was actually a good initiative. Like they didn't like try to screen people, they just tried to bring any qualified ulama there. And for some country just to do that, fund everyone to come, pay for their tickets, pay for their hotel, and all these ulama just are able to interact with one another. And, and discuss and even just the power of ideas that could come out of there, um, you know, it's a good thing, right? It's a, it's a good, and you would have never thought this, you know, a few decades ago, right? So if you know the history, I think when people say, oh, look at the, all the bad stuff, I don't, I think sometimes they don't look at the whole scenario and the whole situation in a complete way. So like even in Pakistan, like um, if, you, if you were to say like, just even 10 years ago that you would be, there would be a possibility of like weeding out cleaning corruption. He said, there's no way, there's no way. This, this, there's not gonna be any changes, right? Um, like you could not go, you couldn't like literally, uh, and it's still dangerous, but people were afraid to go to Karachi, for example. Like you go to Karachi, you're gonna get robbed, you know? Don't show a phone when you're out, like, and, and I did like in two thousand early two thousands. I went there, and the day that I went to the, I was picked up at the airport. My uncle told me the day before he was robbed, right? Like it was crazy. But you know, people are talking more of justice. There's more Islamic stuff being you know spoken about. Like I saw myself the the evolution of people you know coming back to the dean within Pakistan. So I appreciate that. I'm like, okay, look at this. They said there was no hope for um, Pakistan to come out of corruption. Right, but now you see, okay, hey, it is a possibility, and there could be massive changes in a in a short period of time. You know, there's a joke that said that, um, you know, uh, on the uh, countries that have the most do the most bribe list, you know, Pakistan was number two, so they prayed the bribe to get into, you know, they bribed <laughs> the list to get to number one, right? So it was like. Uh, you know, all this, but then um, I think last year it was like, you know, one of the greatest stock markets, um, you know, the Pakistani stock market had the greatest, one of the greatest increases and things like that. So I, I think when people say that, they don't appreciate, the, you know, the modern historical context, right? Because we know mm. that there was a lot of trauma with, you know, colonialism and, you know, a lot of things that happened, uh, you know, in the aftermath of that. Um, and so that process takes time, right? And um, I remember asking one of my shuyukh actually, uh, that you have all these movements, there's a lot of these Islamic movements, they come up and you, it seems like for a short period of time, they accomplish all these great things and then they stop, they just plateau or they fail. And so he said, you shouldn't look at it in that perspective. All of these different things, they move up and wherever Allah SWT has destined and stopped, they do. They stop, but then it's like a step. And then the next one has to come to carry it. And then it's a step. And the next one has to carry it, right? But as long as you don't look at it as a failure, but it's a step, okay, who's going to take this and take it, you know, further, 
further up, right? So I agree with you. I think people, they don't look at it at, uh, at, at, in a complete, you know, way. And, and sometimes your apathy or your fatalism can skew the way you look at, you know, you know, uh, some of these events, how they unfold, you know? Yeah. Uh, so I think that, uh, it's very feasible. Um, Muslims just have to believe it's feasible. That's the, there's this really strange, um, irony in any political change it's yeah. it starts with the the belief the belief in the possibility and then that eventually becomes a reality mm. but it has to muslims have to believe that they can do it and that uh, with enough patience and perseverance uh, but also with hikmah they can achieve it mm. um and it, it doesn't require uh, like you know pulling a rabbit out of the hat it's a form of magic but but simply um um, going and doing uh, the, the da'wah in the Muslim world, um, so explaining to Muslims uh, the basis for their aqidah, giving them yaqeen in, in that, because then they'll be willing to, to actually, when they know for certain, absolute certainty that um, you know, uh, they can acquire Jannah by um, devoting themselves, by sacrificing their time and their efforts, um, this, even though they might face being arrested and imprisoned and things like this, um, then they'll 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 do so. Um, but when but fear fear shows that uh, what was it? Fear denies faith, right? Fear um, shows that there's there's a weakness in their understanding because they think, oh, maybe I'm going to just be giving up my life for no reason, and there's no reward for me in the hereafter, and there's no whatever. There's that little grain, grain of doubt that makes them weak. Um, but then, then giving them a, an aim, a direction. What does this, what does the state would look? Like? What does it look like? What? Mm. How does the economic system run? How would it actually practically solve these these problems? Mm. How do you set up a, a bank banking system not based on interest? Mm. Um, and how would we implement that in the, the current world environment? Once you give um, these details to the people, you you teach. Here's how it would look like. Here's mm. how feasible it would be. Here's how within our grasp. Um, once they know what to aim for, and they are motivated to do it, mm. the rest um, takes care of itself. You know, as the Quran says, Allah does not change the state of the people until they change what within themselves. Um, for some reason, many Muslims used to use that verse to talk about to say, "Yeah, so if Muslims were praying more, that's then Allah would change our state." Well, mm. Saudi Arabia people, like, was like the, the vast majority of the population, pray. Um, and no one could argue that they say, oh, they don't know how to pray, that they clearly do, that doesn't change their state. Now it's going to the worst, right? It's going to the worst. Change what's within yourself. And it doesn't refer to, well, changing your organs. So what's left? If it's not, um, it, the verse didn't say for those who change their actions. No, it's, it's not about changing your organs. So what else is inside you that you can change? It's your ideas and your, um, and your understandings. And um, yesterday, th this question came up, um, about, like, what is the practical method for establishing Khilafah and so on and so forth. And I related something which um, most Muslims probably didn't realize, which is, um, so last year I gave a course on, on, uh, on uh, Palestine advocacy. And I also debated a Zionist as well, um, uh, well-known, kind of well-known YouTube Zionist, Los okay. Vegas Corner and so on and so forth. Mm. Engages Muslims, and um, so one of the so I've I've been covering the, the you know the Palestine matter for, for uh, eighteen nineteen years now, 
Mashallah. And um, one of the things that I found fascinating was that in many ways, um, Jews were where Muslims are now. With the exception that they, had, they didn't have any states that were, were Jewish majority. When before they set up um, Israel, before they, they managed to reestablish their state in Palestine. And they, uh, at the beginning, most the people think that it was re religious Jews that brought about the state of Israel um, at the beginning. No, it was, it was the opposite. It was the atheists, uh, atheists and socialist Jews that actually were the first ones who started, and liberal Jews who started to um, argue for it, for it first. And they argued for it pragmatically. They said, they said look, um, everywhere in the world that Jews are, um, they are being persecuted, they're being uh, disrespected. Um, because we don't have a state that would require us to be accepted in the in the the, the kind of the, the rankings of, of the world as a, as a people that have a state that represent them, because it was an, it was an age of nationalism, and so they had no nation state that represents them. So their their argument was very it wasn't about oh, let's uh, reclaim our old birthright. And, no, 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 that wasn't the main argument. The argument was um, Jews are being persecuted around the world. No one will respect us until we have a state on the world stage that will make people. Um, will we'll, we'll demand that respect, right? Like every other nation has a state, well, mm -hmm. most na nations have a state, we will not be respected until we have a state too. That was their main argument. Um, Sophia de Herzl wrote the book, The Jewish State, and this was the argument he was making in that. And he didn't care whether the state was in Argentina or was in Palestine, right? Mm. Um, and then they said, well, well, you know, what do we do? And besides, most Jews were not we're thinking it's pie in the sky, like like make a state for us. How are you going to do that? Where? Mm. What's going on? They were they were very much um, uh, skeptical about it, and simply um, what he did was he he in essence he, he created a congress, the Zionist Congress. It wasn't that wasn't that well attended. Not that many um, Jews from different organizations were there. You would think it was going to be like a damp squib, just not, not going to go anywhere. But what he does is he starts to send delegations to different uh, countries, asking uh, European powers, would you back our, our move? He goes to Sultan Abdul Hamid II, the Ottoman Caliph. He says, oh, we'll, give you, we'll give you all this money if you, get, if you give us Palestine. Uh, what people didn't realize was he actually didn't have any money. He, what he was hoping was he would go to Sultan Abdul Hamid, offer him the money, he would say yes, then he would go to find as many rich backers as he could, um, people who didn't think that you could have a, a, such a state, and say, look, here's a price tag. Mm. Isn't it practical now? Yeah. Could just raise the money and we can then, we can then buy it, buy the he, land. But didn't he, like, weren't people, you had some very phenomenally rich Jews, though, that were helping this project, right? Like the Rothschilds? And... No, no, not at the very, not at the beginning. Not no. at the beginning, but as the, you know, the, um, uh, you know, that movement, you know, gained momentum, right? Well, again, not, um, not so. Uh, getting funding out the Rothschilds was like taking, uh, getting blood out of a stone back then. Um, in typical fashion, I, I, I why is it so familiar to me? Because I've seen such situations with many organizations who say that they try to approach rich people to get to fund their dawah, what have you, and it's like very hard to get that investment. I've had many people complain to me about this, and it sounds it sounded so reminiscent. I was like, wow, this is so reminiscent. 
Um, the Rothschilds weren't actually giving any money. Um, even when uh, even when Theodore Herzl thought, was, was saying, look, he met up with them and he got rebuffed. Like, no, they, they think it was pie in the sky. But what I found was fascinating was that many of these Zionist organizations, um, they thought, well, look, we don't know about getting a state or not, um, but let's just relocate Jews to Palestine, even during under Ottoman control, make, build, buy farms, buy land, and you know, send them there because they, they, there's pogroms and there's persecution. So we'll just send them there and just see what happens. Right? It's like, let's just, just we'll, we'll just send them there. We have no plan. Right? Let's just see what happens. Right? And they start building and building on that. Uh, mm. And even then, that wasn't Theodore Herzl doing that, by the way. That was just, uh, it was about just relocating, um, bringing Jews back to, as they say, to, to Palestine. Um, uh, but again, it was they had no idea. Like many, most of them didn't even think about having a state. They just thought, mm. wouldn't it be nice for Jews to come back to Palestine in greater numbers and, and avoid mm. persecution in Russia and in Hungary and places like that? So, you, you, you know about that figure, uh, Aaron Aronson, uh, the agronomist who uh, worked for the Ottoman Empire? His story is uh, his story is fascinating. We actually did a series on modern history, and. Um, it's a very uh, interesting um, role he played in um, the establishment of uh, Israel and uh, uh, conspiring against the Ottoman Empire. <coughs> he actually is the one who set up the biggest uh, Jewish spy network during um, World War I uh, in uh, the lands that the Ottoman Empire uh, controlled. Yeah, but that that only happened um, after uh, the Balfour Declaration, um, where it was kind of offered, where kind of um, the services were offered by organized by the Zionist movement. They offered it to British, like we can we can give you a lot of help. But actually, ironically speaking, the British um, actually thought that they would back um, the kind of uh, Jewish request because they thought. Um, like most, unfortunately, uh, the common trope was they thought that, well, maybe uh, we need America to help join the World War One. Maybe the Jews in America or in the media can help influence Americans to join um, join the war, which is is a trope of the of you know the the, the standard trope you see today of um, they say that Nazis say that the Jews control the media and so on, so, which is um, a typical trope you hear that that. Is meant to be anti-Semitic, right? Anti-Semitic trope, right? But the British Empire actually thought that was the case and wanted to use that um, to uh, to get America to join um, the the Allies in fight in winning World War One, and they were looking to use any kind of help they could get to 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 do that, which is probably why uh, many historians think that's what that's what the British believed, which is why they backed um, the, uh, the the movement, Zionist movement, but. The reason why I mentioned this, mm. and the reason why I'm, I'm going there in the first place, was yeah. simply because we kind of went off on a tangent. <laughs> we went off on a tangent, no, but yeah. it, it was very relevant. Yes, which is what I saw was that um, you got a, a situation where the the, the the majority of Jews in the world thought it was pie in the sky to resurrect a two thousand year old, um, a two thousand dead. So it's a two thousand years old. It had been dead state. Right, you know, even then they didn't resurrect this, you know, a state based on mosaic law. They just made a secular liberal state and called it Israel. But 
it was dead for 2,000 years uh, as a, a political entity that they thought that oh, controlled by Jews. They thought, what, you're going to resurrect that? That's ridiculous. Yeah, mm. no, not going to happen. And slowly, by gathering a movement and simply just changing people's perspective on it, uh, where they, he undid the roadblocks in people's minds, right? Uh, and then more and more uh, kind of Jews from around the world joined the Congress, and it started to get more and more and more momentum, mm. even though they didn't know at that point how they're going to achieve it. They actually mm. didn't have, like, they didn't know, what, like, well, they couldn't invade the Ottomans. They weren't a state, they weren't an army. How are they going to do this? They went to the German Kaiser. They thought maybe he would um, pressure the Ottomans because they were allies, pressure the Ottomans to maybe accept a deal. Um, they, they, they were thinking, we don't know what to do, but they were still building farms and um, agricultural settlements in Palestine under the Ottomans. Um, a lot of it, not uh, with, with Ottomans not knowing uh, what, what mm -hmm. was happening, but they were just thought, look, um, some Jews said, like, I don't care about state. Let's just get Jews back to Palestine uh, because it's their homeland, even if they don't have a state. It's not, we don't care, but as, as long as they can just go back there. So there was different opinions amongst them. Right? Others... Other Jews were, they were called cultural Zionists. They were ones who said, oh, we don't care about political state so much. We just want the Jewish identity, especially in Western countries, to be preserved because they're being, uh, Jews are kind of, in a way, being dissolved of their culture, becoming Westernized, um, well, becoming like liberalized and um, lo losing the knowledge of their language and things like this. So there was so many different madhahib um, or factions mm. or what have you. And... You just simply see that the, the, the political Zionists, the ones who actually wanted to have a state, mm -hmm. start to win as they become, as they gather more and more momentum. They have these congresses where they update on the latest successes, usually failures um, they encountered, but it just created this directed focus. Even, even then, the majority of the world's Jews didn't, didn't um, think it would, anything would come of it. They didn't support it. And religious Jews said, no, no, only until the Messiah comes then you'll have a state. The vast majority of religious Jews didn't believe that the state of Israel could ever be established. And, and they thought it shouldn't be established until the Messiah comes. That was the prophecy they believed, right? Mm. Um, and only until 1967, then they changed their minds. That's, six, that's after Israel was established and after the Six-Day War. The reason why I brought all this was mm. when the Quran says that Allah does not change the state of a people until they change what is within themselves, it's it's um it's a general statement. It doesn't only apply to believers. It's like it applies to anyone. Um, that if they change what they believe and how they view things, their situation changes. Mm. And so even though this caused a great oppression against the Palestinians, right, and it caused and under their suffering to this day, which I've been arguing, uh, you know, for their 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 rights, and I've been arguing against the, what, what's been happening to them. But I noted how Allah Subhanahu wa Taala allowed this situation to occur because these people, because uh, many Jews around the world who adopted the political Zionism, they simply believed it was possible and could be done. Mm. And then somehow it, then it, it happened simply because they changed their perspective on it. They, mm. from a pie in the sky dream to something practical. How would they ever have achieved it if they didn't get any backing by any particular power? Because how are they ever going to, before you have a state, you don't, how can you just, in, you can't invade, yeah. and you don't have any armies, right? Yeah. So, so my point is this, if they, if, if uh, political Zionists could resurrect 
uh, a state that had been dead for 2,000 years without, with no starting armies and not much unity amongst them, by the way, then why can't Muslims resurrect um, a state that's only been gone for 100 years and we already have states and armies? Mm. That was my point. That was my point. And as I said, um, everyone thinks, oh, but you know, the uh, Jews were united. No, no, they weren't. They were not. They were very much not united at all. The same. No, it's true. They, yeah. There was, uh, w with uh, the Zionist Council, a lot of Jews living on, in, in minority or like in other countries, um, they didn't want to have that impression that their allegiance is to the state over like the Zionist state over like there's going to be conflict of interest right like yeah. uh because they thought okay um if we're going to be in the united states we don't want people to think that we have an allegiance for this over this homeland that we that has accepted us right so there was a lot of conflict it wasn't like a straightforward thing that everyone was was on board but you did have some people voraciously like working towards you know trying to establish right um uh, this project, right, the Zionist project, um, but you're you're absolutely correct in in that sense. Um, I think also one thing that I've so, so then we can kind of break it down also in a, in a practical sense. The when you're talking about you know changing that condition within yourself, right? And I see this with a lot of Muslims today. Um, because you know when you I've been involved in Dawa for over 22 years and meeting scholars du'a people volunteers imams so many things and people always talk brotherhood they talk unity even people talk khilafa but uh, inside it's like they don't really have that care for one another because I think you, you have to like if you you don't want khilafa as the idea oh this would be really good because the pragmatic conclusion or outcome of that is we're going to be strong and we'll have this one, you know, you know, united, uh, you know, front, like they only look at it from that one type of lens. But for that to happen, you have to have like at least a sincere care. You care about your dean. Uh, you care uh, about um, uh, your love for Allah SWT. You care about Rasul You care about one another, right? But Many of these kind of most, you know, the rhetoric that Muslims say, the care they don't have the care to back it up, whether it's for the cause or for the people, you know what I mean. And if we look at the Sunnah of Rasulullah, he truly cared for people, even though he fought battles, even though he sent people, you know. But there was a sincere care because as soon as there was an opening uh, to forgive or, um, you know, to 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 practice mercy. The Messenger of Allah did that, right? But I find that even if you see the rhetoric, like the way that we deal with each other, the rhetoric is there, oh, unity, brotherhood, all these things, but there's not real care and kindness. You know what I mean? With And, and it's often, you know how um, uh, Allah he says, you know, uh, the quality of the believers, like they should be kind, you know, uh, to the believers. That's one of the you know, qualities and characteristics, right? So, you know, I, I think part of that internal change to see it externally is that when we say, hey, we want to, like, a, for example, if a person 
says, hey, I want to bring back the, uh, you know, Khilafah, or I want to bring back this unity or whatever. We have to actually sincerely care about people, right? Because you, you've probably seen it like, um, you know, more so than I have because you're kind of in, you know, the debate world or you see it on, even on social media. But we're very quick to kind of raise the sword with each other and bring each other down. We disagree and it just goes from zero to 60 in a second, right? Yeah. And it's like, how many of us like are practicing some of those basic practical things that are just, because I, in my estimation is this, is that if you have true Iman and you understand Iman, you have the understanding and uh, you adhere to the truth, a natural consequence of that is that those people should be uniting together uh, for the Khilafah. That's like a natural, you know, byproduct of people who are having these, uh, you know, this internal processes going on, right? So part of, the, if you have these internal processes, we shouldn't say, okay, you know what, today is the day where if you haven't called somebody, you should call them and see how they're doing. You know what I mean? Like... Uh, go to your, you heard your brother sick. Go visit your brother who's sick. Sahih Muslim. This is like one of the rights that we have on 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 each other. You give an invitation, receive, giving a sincere advice to one another. But a lot of those practices are far and few between, right? Like even with people like Muslims that people are quote unquote friends with each other, they don't even have a lot of these fundamental practices. But it should be just a natural consequence of that care of that belief. You know what I mean? So um, at that level, at that level, um, do you see, what trend do you see? Do you see that people are getting to that level of consciousness um, or are we still kind of far away even from that? You know what I mean? Um, I, well, I feel that, um, you know, if, if you, again, if you just change the concepts in the Muslim minds. Yeah. The rest follows because um that's exactly right like it should just be like it should flow right like iman like if you if a person has true iman like for example there's um there's somebody that i gave dawah to he accepted islam his first visit to the masjid i took him to the masjid uh he sees a donation box he's the first thing he says can i donate no one told him you should donate or there's like uh you know, sadaqah in Islam or whatever. He just, he's new Muslim. He just told him, La ilaha illallah, Muhammad Rasulullah. But a natural consequence of Iman is like, I want to give. Like, you know what I mean? So I think that's the problem is that a that major fundamental part of truly understanding that concept is maybe only partially in place, right? It's not fully constructed. Well, um, an analysis of the Muslim of the current Jahli, the Muslim world, has usually been restricted to um, people say, uh, you know, Muslim, the way to revive Muslims is that we do certain actions, or, or the way to um, the reason why we're backward is because we don't do certain actions. Yeah. Um, and yes, that is the case, but uh, to an extent, but it's more like if if you're not doing actions that are required, that there's something, you know. These are effects that you're not seeing, which means the cause of these effects are not there. Mm. And if you're seeing the cause of bad effects that shouldn't be there, that means there's a cause that's there that shouldn't be there. So, mm. so we, when we see actions, we're just seeing effects. We have to look behind the effects to see what's the cause of it. 
Mm. So when um, you see when you see Muslims going into engaging into arguments, drama, um, not forgiving each other, um, and, and what have you, you have to ask: Well, is it just um, is it just oh they're just hot tempered? It's just these people. No, um, why would they engage in that? Um, it's simply because if the average Muslim, uh, at least in the Muslim world, anyway speaking, um, uh, when the Muslim world, the Muslim world doesn't live by any higher values anymore, like it used, like mm. centuries past. Um, so what you get is much like you get in um, in areas where, let's say, law and order has broken down in any country, uh, where you know gangs take over. Right? Mm. Now in gangs, um, if if you're doing a business deal and the other person's not paying you for your your product or whatever it is yeah um um or uh you what, what you know you can't go to the police and say excuse me yeah. um I, I gave this person five k- yeah. kilograms of cocaine yeah. and they haven't honored yeah. the deal by paying me back money yeah. the police will arrest you with them yeah. right so what guarantees that people honor their word to you is your reputation right you have to have a reputation Otherwise, they won't respect you yeah. because you can't go to any third-party authority. Mm-hmm. But if that's the case, um, then your, if your reputation is your currency, then you need to do whatever you can to buy reputation, so to speak, mm. um, which means that if people disrespect you, you have to retaliate against them mm. by showing them the consequences of disrespect. Mm. Um, if another gang is getting more um, reputation than you and they might take your future business, you need to um, fight against them, outdo them, compete against them and see them um, lose in order for you to win. It becomes mm. zero-sum game. Yeah. So I've often looked at the jahli in the Muslim world. Is, is, um, I, I often liken or translate the word jahliya, even though it, 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 is, it means ignorance, but I translate it to actual anarchy. Mm. Because people think, well, anarchy just means no government. Well, yes, but there never can be no government amongst humans because humans always order themselves, mm. always, where they form gangs, they form um, mm. local community, uh, uh, was it um, uh, neighborhood watch associations? Yeah. They form it automatically. It, it, it's, an, it's an emergent property amongst humans. Yeah. Um, anarchy is when any society or group of people don't live by any higher principle except um, human ranking. Mm. Then, if that's the mindset, then um, Islam in Muslim society becomes viewed as simply um, a source of ranking. Mm. Right? So that, oh, someone is righteous or religious, okay, we respect him if he shows that. And then others will say, oh, that person's just righteous and religious because they want to show off, because they just want to be to get the kudos, to get the, mm. the, the respect. And so then this people are cynical, uh, and they're cynical about when they do see righteous people. Mm. Um, but at the same time, then people use um, uh, religion saying, oh, I'm a better scholar than this guy, or that scholar's a, a charlatan, I'm, you know, like, listen mm. to me. You have scholars having drama with each other, um, that, does, that has occurred or does occur, or, or their followers saying, this scholar's my scholar, I'm mm. following better than your scholar. Uh, and you have, you know, your scholar's off the manhaj, no, your scholar's off the manhaj. Mm. Um, uh, and... That translates up for every activity that Muslims do would be um, competition, one-upmanship, because there's no higher um, value. They forgot 
the higher value. Simply mm-hmm. telling them, brothers, what you're doing is just haram, we should all be um, uh, brothers in the deen. That's viewed as um, a, uh, what, what do they say, a um, being a, a pietistic ideal. Oh, it's really great. Oh, you know, it's very, you're very naive. It's, okay, it's, mm. yeah, it's really great sentiment, mm. but you're naive because mm. what, how things work on the ground is, you know, um, eat or be eaten. Yeah, kill or um, be killed, right? Yeah, so like, uh, it's great as utopic, as utopic what you're believing. Mm. Um, wh- whereas what it should be is actually, it should be practical. Mm. Where people say, "Well, look, um, we're here to we're here to, to you know to, to worship Fisabilillah. Um Every Muslim success is every other Muslim success because mm. we're all advancing the same thing. Mm. Uh, we're, we're raising the levels of our. So, if, if one business in a Muslim, in an area in a community ever gets very successful, it shouldn't be the cause of other rivals to try to destroy them. But but that success might bring more money into that area. Mm. And then other businesses. Um, all, all ships would, rise with the tide. Exactly, but because Muslims don't have don't have that concept in the Muslim world, mm. it's one about undermining your your um, fellows and not about um, uh, let's all be in the same boat together mm. and raise ourselves up. There was a, a, an experiment done, a clinical experiment done, um, uh, in uh, looking at human psychology, where they they uh, I've got the, the kind of game that was happening, but. People had a choice to um, to bet on some some um, activity and get a little bit of money, and but if they were seeing an opponent or not opponent sorry um, one of their fellow participants um, making more money than them, they could they could spend their money to reduce to like make them lose their money. Right? Mm. And what they found is that people were were <clears throat> more willing. Is that to, prisoner's to dilemma? To, is that no no no? Um, but that's similar. Okay. Um, but people were willing to actually um, spend their money out of envy to to make people lose their own money mm. their, to their colleagues, even though it wouldn't affect like what's it got to do mm. with you? Like if you just if you kept spending your money to maybe make more money, even though on smaller increments, maybe yeah. you'd still come out of that experiment with with, mm. with some money, as opposed to saying, "Oh, but I hate that person getting more than me," mm. and, and so on. So um, when when you became yeah. like Muslim, because you 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 accepted Islam like in your early teens, right? Mm. Did you find like what you observed in the Muslim community was it to a degree of fitna for you like cuz like did that uh, you know cuz for some new Muslims sometimes they come with these ideals of what Islam should be and then when they they get a crash course in reality of how things work you know on the ground like how was it for you in your early days in Islam like your experience with the Muslim community uh, mixed. Um, I met some good brothers. I met some bad brothers, and then I met I, I met some brothers that were in a local college, and they were actually really amazing. Um, mm. They had a really amazing. Um, uh, they created a really amazing scene. He actually gave me a, almost a taste of what um, a Muslim society could be like yeah. if the principles were followed, the ideas were on, um, were, were implemented. But but if Muslim mindset was simply changed. I, I'm, I'm gonna. I made him. I made a lot of abstract points. So I'm gonna maybe yeah. give you like something more concrete, just to show you the difference. So, um, if let's take let's say let's take the Dawah scene or Dawah generally. So, uh, and again, I, I'm, I'm not talking about anyone in particular. I'm just giving you. Um, mm. I'm, I'm, I'm calling to you things got, that people you, have seen. You're not gonna name names. 
No, I'm, I, I'm, I'm going back from 20 years of experience. I can yeah. pick any example from yeah, my, yeah, my 20 yeah. years. So, yeah, yeah. so um, uh, nothing, nothing recent at all. Yeah, yeah. Um, so, for example, uh, some brothers I knew were doing Dawa as a hobby. And, and, mm. uh, and then when it starts to get you, uh, people come into your website, when they were writing blogs and they're writing articles. Mm. And that was how it started before YouTube. Mm. Yeah. Um, uh, then you know people were starting to say, oh, okay, this is actually I'm getting some, I'm getting a regular readership, mm. um, you know, um, and then speakers corner uh, before the cameras came, mm. uh, so before YouTube or, uh, mm. came, um, speakers corner um, uh, had some liveliness, but there were you know brothers that were uh, had reputations, and um, and what I saw was that when someone one's reputation of one particular brother was was maybe was rising and and someone else um, maybe had to share their audience because uh, some people will come to corner some would go to that one some go to that one mm. um the there would be some envy rivalry they would start actually attacking other brother by saying oh this mm. person's a deviant or this person yeah. is, is, is doesn't know what they're talking about this person's ignorant um and it would lead to some uh dramas uh, between them because they think well that person's person's success is my loss mm. that was the that's the concept in the mind, mm. right? That caused that behavior. Yeah. Yeah. Whereas the better or the better um, concept, if they uh, that would have made a different behavior, and I've seen that this also with brothers is, if they see someone doing well, they say Alhamdulillah, the Deen of Islam is being advanced successfully, which is all our success. Mm. Uh, with Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala because, and because our purpose here is to, is to advance it. And if I, uh, if I am envious at someone, one brother's um, really astute arguments or his mm. persuasiveness or what have mm. you, I'm going to try to improve my arguments mm. um, to, uh, I'm going to uh, com- friendly compete, uh, mm. compete in a, in a way that mutually encourages, okay, I'm going to compete with that brother by improving myself, mm. you know, uh, compete in the good, right? mm. as the Quran says, compete in the good, mm. and not compete by undermining, mm. but say, okay, you know, you've raised your game. I'm going to, you know, alhamdulillah, mashallah, excellent. I'm going to raise my game, mm. you know, in the mutual good, mm. you see? And if, I, if I've, and even if someone says they want more followers or they want what have you, mm. they would see that person um, doing well and they'll say, you know what, I'm going to improve my arguments, improve my approach to get more followers to me. And ultimately, the level of quality of Dawah goes up. Mm. So even those who are doing it cynically, mm. <laughs> right, for cynical reasons, yeah. um, would still, where they had that mentality, would, it would still um, have a positive effect on the doubt because instead of undermining that person, mm. they'd be seen as um, as just improving themselves mm. to, to compete. So simply having a change of concept creates different behaviors. Mm. Right? And if um, uh, you know some, and like some brothers used to mm. ask me, um, like, like years and years ago, mm. dec- maybe a decade ago, uh, when you know there was various dramas and things occurring, and they said. Um, you know, oh, you know, maybe you should wade in. Maybe you should, you know, speak, you know, like uh, speak about it. And I said no, because um, if you wade in, it won't be understood mm. as oh, you know, you're you're giving good nasiha. It'll mm. be understood as 
you're now trying to undermine. You're now mm. a, a new player into the game mm. yeah. <laughs> to try and undermine because um, uh, uh, and and this would probably be an, an advice I have for people today is that um, you can't simply just change that concept in people's minds simply mm. by um, wading in and um, arguing with the people in mm. public because. It gets interpreted as, oh, you're now attacking me yeah. because they you're you're envious or yeah. you're uh, whatever. Um, you know, whereas, I think I think they project their intention on other people. Oh no, of course, because when someone has that concept, uh, an incorrect concept in mm. their mind, mm. they can only understand the, their mental model of other people will be based on what they think motivates. Mm. Uh, yeah. It's motivating everybody else. Yeah. Right? No, of course. Whereas no honor among thieves, right? <laughs> well, well, yeah. But if they just if they just said if they just changed the concept and said look, um, you know uh, you, you could say you know look in in the in the dawa if you see your your uh, your your fellow brother in deen mm. um, doing successful say alhamdulillah mm. and just up your own game. Mm. That's why you know the scholars they talk about envy is actually also a problem with your aqidah because you think that the khair of Allah subhanahu wa taala is limited. And that we're all fighting over these limited resources, but you don't know what khair. Allah Subhanahu wa Taala's khair is, you know, is not limited to your what your mind says, right? Like Allah Subhanahu wa Taala will provide you whatever goodness or barakah and whatever you do, uh, irregardless of another person's success, right? Mm. So uh, it's also actually, I think, was fundamental again to those core uh, issues because it's an aqidah issue. You know, if you feel there is, are you putting yourself now restricted on the khair that Allah Subhanahu wa Taala has has given? So it's only you know, you know, ten, uh, say for example, followers. They just make it a simple number. Says, oh, we're fighting over ten. No, <laughs> you know what I mean. Who knows what Allah Subhanahu wa Taala in your mind? You cannot, because uh, you, you don't know the ghaib. Allah Subhanahu wa Taala knows uh, the unseen and what's ri- written for everyone. And you've made a certain limited amount that we're fighting over. You yeah, know yeah. what I mean? Yeah. Yeah. And um, um, I use an expression in one of my articles. It's um, uh, it's uh, what was it? It's better. It's better to be um, a fish that shares an ocean mm. than a swan that rules a swamp. Mm. But I, I changed it. Maybe and I said maybe a toad that rules a swamp because mm. the swan looks nice, but the yeah. toad, yeah. Um, like it tells you, well, at least I have this what belongs to me, mm. but it's a swamp. Yeah. You know, whereas a fish might be one fish in the sea, but if you, you get to share the whole sea, yeah. there's plenty of space and it's better, it's nicer, you know, yeah. rather than a, than a swamp. So, yeah. um, so but, but my point is this, mm. if, Mus- if um, Muslims change their concepts about this, mm. the behavior would change. Mm. You see, so if they change what's within themselves, mm. their situation, um, the situation would change. And, mm. and, and, um, and, Subhanallah, in the UK, um, for example, um, there's a lot of, um, of there's a lot of friend now. Uh, there's a lot of friendly cooperation help mm. uh, between Muslim organisations, mm. um, between um, uh, different du'at. Mm. It, they, it, it, they, That's good. They've matured. Everyone's matured yeah. across the board. It's really nice to see. Mm. Um, I mean, I, I can't, I can't speak for other countries because I, ha- I don't have that much mm. understanding of what's happening. Um, mm. You know, outside uh, the UK, seen so much. Um, I can't. You can't judge. You can't use YouTube to judge stuff. Yeah. Um, yeah. But I. I, yeah. I hope it goes even beyond that. Like I. I think a metric of success should be more than just 
us not always at each other's throats, but actually actively collaborating with each other, utilizing each other's resources and skill sets, you know, for a common unified purpose. And also I think stronger. Yeah. And and then also, like I said, that real care, you know what I mean? Because one thing I'll, I'll tell you from my experience in the Dawah, people who are actually actively working the Dawah very, they have very weak support structures. Unfortunately, they should have much stronger support structures. Oh, yeah. You know what I mean? We don't care about our shiuch. We don't care about our leaders, our du'at. Like, they're kind of almost on their own. Like, some people, they deal with, like, whether they're dealing with health issues, family problems, whatever. Sometimes they're by themselves. You know, no one, they give, but no one ever really gives back to them. You know what I mean? Like, <laughs> hey, let's, how are you doing? You know, you okay? Mm. At least just to see a salam. Are you alive? Is, uh, how's your health? What's... You know, what's going on with you? You know what I mean? Even to, I would say to that level, we should start thinking like the more we could even uh, at an emotional level, just reinforce, you actually bring strength to the Tao because that individual you're calling to, maybe they needed that, that salam, that hug, that attention, and that makes them a stronger and better Dai. You know, you know what I mean? So I think even on that fundamental level, because, uh, for sure, anytime you give, you get more in return. You know, anytime you give, and that could be a salam, that could be a phone call, that could be, you know, a visit. You know what I mean? Mm. So I, I think on that fundamental level, uh, I hope it, we kind of actually raise our standards. So it's like, oh, it's good. We haven't had any major beefs in a while, but hopefully it can get even to a, a, a better uh, level, you know, where we can actually... You know, start getting to these some of these lofty ideas that well, <laughs> we've well, been discussing. Well, well as I said, like yeah. if, if you if you just simply um, uh, show uh, show Muslims that to look um, all these different, let's say, let, just using an example of the Dawah scene as an mm. example, just an example mm. to, to show the concept. So, mm. if you just simply say, look, um, uh, we all have strengths and we all have weaknesses. Mm. So, if we all um, kind of help each other, you cancel out the weaknesses and you actually reinforce the strengths. Mm. So that if we were just uh, a bunch of individuals, mm. we reach only this amount. You know, there's mm. a, I think there's like a meme or something where, so if everyone is standing, you have everyone standing um, beside a wall and the wall's taller than them. Yes. Or, no matter how many individuals you get, they wouldn't be able to cross over the wall. Yeah. But if they actually start um, like, like going on top of each other to, and pushing each other up and helping each other up, they could actually all go over the wall with the, the, the person that goes over the last, this penultimate person putting their hand down and pulling up the last person. Yeah. They could all go over the yeah, wall. Yeah. See, so um, that's just an analogy. But if Muslims um, uh, in, the, in the Dao scene, uh, in globally, wherever Dao scene there is in different countries, mm. if they adopted this, mm. um, then what you'll find is that uh, our Dao would be Im- impeccable as the weaknesses mm. are. Are, are negated by mm. people giving nasiha, by people um, saying, brother, let, let me help you, here's some better arguments, let me help you, here's how you mm. should say things in a better style. Mm. Um, and at the same time, uh, saying, oh, uh, kind of strengthening each other, mm. because, I mean, many times I've seen many du'at, um, they might not be clued up in certain subjects, mm. but there's another guy who, yeah, who is, 100%, and he says, Here, here's my notes, here's something, yeah. use it. So this is the yeah. kind of stuff, that, that's just an example. Mm. Um, but the point was this, that in the Muslim world, generally speaking, mm. if the understanding was that if we all help each other, mm. we become stronger. Mm. And um, if you have uh, tawakkal min Allah, mm. right? 
Allah will always, uh, you know, He will not abandon us, and He will show, He will actually, you know, bring that strength together. He will mm. actually aid that strength. If you if you help someone, not expecting anything in return, because it has mm. to, it has to start by that initiating point. Mm. Like, okay, you know, what? I'm going to help you. I don't expect anything in return, mm. and then Allah will not disappoint you, mm. right? Because uh, getting people to say, look, just help someone, don't expect anything in return, well, they're not going to do any, anything back to me. Yeah. Why should I start? Yeah. But once you get the ball rolling, it creates like a snowball effect yes. where people actually start to get, um, they get more trust that that is now the new way of doing things. Yes, yeah. And then even the even those who are not so religiously minded mm. will then change their behavior as every as the culture changes. No, you're right them. about that chain reaction, because my wife recently went through a drive through like a coffee house, and. Um, she came to the window and uh, said, oh, the person in front of you already paid. And she's like, oh, really? He's like, yeah, like a, a few carlings ago, somebody started that and it's just been continuing. So my wife's like, yeah, I'll pay for the next person, right? <laughs> and well, the next person had a way smaller order than her. <laughs> she had the kids <laughs> in the car, right? <laughs> but but who, who knows how long it lasted, right? It just started by one person probably said, I'm going to do something nice. And then the other person, hey, I should do something nice. And, you know what I mean? And it just perpetuated, right? So on that note, sweet words from a very sweet man. Where? And, uh. and uh, um, we could have gone all night. Actually, I didn't think we'd go this long because it's so late. You're tired. But when you get the conversation going and we're talking about a lot of different heavy topics and subjects and things like that, it becomes very engaging and then your tiredness kind of goes away because your mind is being stimulated in all sorts of different ways. So, yeah. Well, we're, we're both very, you know, um, we've been in, in the Dow for some time. We're very passionate about these subjects, but it's, it's mainly because, as I said, um, we both see, uh, despite all the failings we might see uh, amongst Umar today, we see the great potential that mm. can be achieved yes. by them. Yes, yeah. And, um, and Allah, you know, Allah yeah. SWT, it's a blessing because He doesn't put that in everybody's heart, in their minds. Not everybody has that. You know, people get jaded, whether they're born Muslim or they revert to Islam. I've seen it, it's only select people. It's like Allah SWT chooses that person to have that feeling and it's a mercy. It's a mercy because I feel those people are the ones that are truly alive. Um, inshallah, um, you know, uh, may we be um, worthy of um, of that if that is indeed mm. the case. And, and but I think this, I've, um, I'm heartened to see actually so many Muslims actually that see the mm. potential, not mm. not just uh, not just a few. And I, I want mm. to see if Muslims really believed in themselves mm. as Allah believes in them. Because he does not give us a burden greater than we can bear. So mm. if we are given these tests, it's because Allah knows we can pass these tests. Yes. So if, if we believed in ourselves as Allah believes in us, mm. um, that we can do it, mm. then we would um, overcome this. We would overcome it very easily, mm. in fact. Um, and that's the, the tragedy is um, that, it's t it, that some Muslim is taking some time for them to realize. And, yeah. and, and as it, the longer it takes, the more... The, the more we have to unnecessarily suffer mm. as, an, as an ummah until mm. we actually reach that point where uh, there'll be a time where maybe our grandkids or, or even our kids would look, look mm. back and say, well, why did Muslims not unite sooner? Mm. Like, what was, what was happening? Why didn't mm. they just not? It's so obvious. Mm. And you'd be like, you think that, right? But, <laughs> mm. <Yeah. laughs> you know, but anyway, yeah. khair, inshallah. Um, yeah, all we can do is, like, is try our best. Mm. And, um, 
I mean, you know, may, may Allah give um, success uh, to to his deen and to the and to the ummah, and inshallah accept our our, our good deeds and um, grant us all mercy and enter us all into Jannah Firdaus, inshallah. Amen, amen. It's a pleasure to do this in person. We had to do this online during COVID. Allah Subhanahu wa Taala gave us well. It was a mercy actually, COVID, because we started. We never had really online activities and presence, but COVID forced us to do that. But now we got to do this IRL, and I think IRL is more powerful. So in real life, we were able to get together. Alhamdulillah. So it's a pleasure as always. And um, if you want to, do you know our tagline? Maybe you can do our tagline to take us out. I'll say it, and then if you can remember it, maybe you could be the first speaker because I I say it to the others, and then they always have a problem getting through the whole uh, tagline outro. So, so it's, we, 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 we live by the haq, we die by the haq, and just when you think life is stuck, tune into life haq. You think you can... Uh, we live by the haq, yeah. we die by the haq, just when you think life is stuck. Yeah. Tune into life hug. That's right. Okay, got it. Allah Akbar. Almost, almost. Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh. Do I feel that the New York police are providing enough protection or do I have to have protection of my own? I look for protection from Allah.